What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Israel Johannes. Now let's break down the roles that are in a control room at Bally Sports. The head honcho is a producer. They tend to create a rundown that will structure the show a certain way. So everyone is going to follow the components of that show. In order for it to flow, at least for the crew, next to the producer is a director. So that director is in charge of giving commands for moving to the next piece of the puzzle for the show. They will coordinate how we're as we as a crew are going to move to the next thing and on to the next and so on and so forth. Next to them is a technical director who operates a switcher. And that technical director is in charge of making sure that you as the audience sees the right thing. So they are the ones who cut from camera to camera to camera to video package to graphic at the direction of the director. Then for the graphics associate producer, which is my job, I'm in charge of getting the stats that we then use on air. And I'm also in charge of building graphics as an operator and making sure that it is shown in a digestible format so that it's not overwhelming to the audience. So that tends to be a combined role, two in one, but there are plenty of times when a graphics AP will have a graphics operator next to them. So for us at Bally Sports, we use a Viz, so the operator will be known as a Viz op or a Viz operator. So then next to the graphics AP is the EVS operator, who's another associate producer, and they are in charge of getting video footage, replay, making sure that there is another angle for something that you had just seen. The producer will call on the EVS operator to get a certain play, and then that EVS operator will get multiple camera angles and sequence it in a way where you as the audience can see multiple angles of the same thing. And so that way you get a better view of what happened so that you're, you're not confused as to you know what a referee might call or what exactly happened on a certain play, just to see the significance of what it is. And then to make sure that everything doesn't blow your ears out, there's an audio person in the back and they are in a booth where it's dead in the room and it's soundproofed so that it doesn't bother any of us in front of them. And then they can test all the levels and make sure that the sound quality is good to go for a broadcast. So the director will call for them for music or for making sure that the graphics machine has their, has its audio levels up or that the spot box, which can run a transition for the technical director, is also up. You can also make sure that the mics for the talent are up. Without the audio person, you can't hear anything and hearing is half the battle. So those are the pieces that make a control room move the way that it does. At Bally Sports, we also have a Bally Bar operator who isn't in the control room, but they are a piece of the broadcast puzzle. And the director will also call on them to make sure that the bar actually gets on the screen and off the screen. And it will be filled in with notes in the pregame or with stats in the postgame. And it'll give you records early or it'll give you the score depending on what point of the day it is. And you'll also see a cycle of other games around the league that are running on an automated system. And so at least you stay updated 
as to what's going on around the league. And then obviously there's talent who is at the desk and they're the ones who run whatever is in the producer's head and showcase it for all of you. So you see what talent will say. Normally that tends to be prepared so that they can be quick and they can fill in the airtime that they have. But it's within the structure of the show. It tends to not go off script, for lack of a better term. Um, But without good talent, the show can't run. So everyone is a piece of this. And when everything is running smoothly, that's when you know you have a good show. So now we will go to the Mavs' last four games. The first of those four, November 1st, was at home against the Bulls. It was a win of 114-105 being the final score. Grant Williams and Tim Hardaway Jr. essentially showed out. They led the way in scoring. Luka didn't do so well in this game in terms of his scoring average. But with those two guys up front, Luka didn't really have to shoulder that much of a load. And Derek Lively also set a new career high in rebounds in this game. Moving on to Friday, November 3rd at Denver, it was a loss, 125 to 114, and it was also an in-season tournament game for both teams. Luka led all scores with 34 points, but Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, Aaron Gordon, and Michael Porter Jr. all contributed in ways where it was just too much for the Mavs. But on to the, ne- to the next game. November 5th at home versus the Charlotte Hornets was a win, 124 to 118. And it was a second half comeback for the Mavs' fifth straight clutch win. The Nuggets game was not a clutch loss because the margin never got to five within the last five minutes. So it didn't affect the clutch win streak to start the season for the Mavs. And then Derek Lively also set a new, new career high in rebounds in this game, only two games after setting his previous high. Then the Mavs played a back-to-back, had to fly to Orlando and play a game at 7 o'clock Eastern, and they won that game 117-102, but it was a second straight, second half comeback. And it also happened to be their sixth straight clutch win. So we're going to break down all those numbers and show the significance of everything behind each of these games. Now, how would a producer or a graphics AP, like myself, present these stats? Just like last week, One, look for trends compared to the last season. Two, focus on the points of contention from the last two weeks, which for me have been rebounding, three-pointers, free throw percentage, second chance points, points in the paint, fast break points, and clutch games. And then establish where the team is now. That's the third point. Because we're two weeks into the season, we can kind of demonstrate with stats an identity for these teams although it may not hold because teams can evolve over time, this is just where we see these teams to be. And for the Mavs, I'm figuring out where they are as of right now. So let's start with the first game, Chicago at Dallas. Some notable stats for, uh, for the Mavs were their rebounding. They had 45 rebounds, which was a margin of plus two. 
significant considering Nikola Vucevic was on the other side with a 21.20 rebound double-double, so hats off to the Mavs for actually out-rebounding the Bulls as a whole. The Mavs shot 20 for 48 from three, which was 41.7%. We'll get to why that number actually, at least why the field goal made numbers matter there. From the free throw line, the Mavs shot 20 of 28 compared to Chicago's 10 of 11. So the Mavs got to the line more often. They utilized it, they capitalized on it, and it was, and it helped out for them. The Mavs also had production from their bench with 44 points, which was eight more than Chicago's. And then they had 24 second chance points, which is out outrageous because you have to rebound just to get second chance points. And that's on the offensive side of the ball. It was 13 more than Chicago's 11. It was the first time, at least for this game, it was the first time in franchise history that the Mavs had four clutch wins in their first four games overall to start a season. And it was the second game this season with, here we go, 23s made. They had 10 such games last year. It's game four, and they already have two. The Mavs are on fire from three, and they know it. But let's look at some problems that the Mavs faced in this game. They were outscored in the paint 54-24. to That can be due to scheme and due to Vucevic being such a big presence inside. The Bulls are not a three-point shooting team like the Mavericks are. They tend to utilize the mid-range more than most other teams, but they also do capitalize in the paint. So the Mavs, because they allowed the third most paint points this season, at least for them, scoring 24 in the paint sounds very, very small. It it is a, a bit too little in terms of what their average is, but they shot so well from outside that it kind of balanced out for them. They also shot really well from the free throw line, so that also helped out with that. Um, so for the, for the Mavs, they found other ways to score when the paint didn't work out for them, which is the whole point. But it's good to note what this margin is. The Mavs were, through this game, outscored in the paint on an average of 13.4 points per game. So if this trend holds, then the Mavs will need to make sure that they utilize other options for scoring. So if they know that they're going to go into a game that and they're not going to be able to outplay their opponent in the paint, then they know that, okay, they got to get more free throws. They got to make more threes. They have to operate in the fast break. They have to get more second chance points. This is a good measuring stick to know where they are. But let's get to a good thing. In the fourth quarter, the Mavs rebounding led to nine second chance points on two for four field goals. Mathematically, that doesn't sound like it makes sense, but I'll break it down. The Mavs made two threes and one of them was an and one for Tim Hardaway Jr., who then converted his free throw. And then there were two more free throws on top of that from a second chance opportunity. So two threes and three free throws. Six plus three is nine. 
that's where those points come from. And yes, free throws, or at least fouls that are drawn in those opportunities are going to, if they're converted, they're going to count as points in those specific categories, such as second chance points. Um, And those offensive rebounds had to come from somewhere. All five of them came from Derek Lively and Grant Williams. Our bigger men are four and five in our lineup, our lineup, in the Mavs lineup. So it's significant having those new additions there. And they helped facilitate the way that the Mavs were able to hold this lead or at least keep Chicago at arm's length and maintain a lead and eventually win in clutch time. Now, let's say the firepower kind of kicks up a bit on the opposing side. What do you do then? Well, the Mavs couldn't really figure it out. So let's talk about that Nuggets game. It was an in-season tournament game, and the Mavs had to travel to Denver without their head coach, Jason Kidd, who was out with a non-COVID illness. So Sean Sweeney stepped in as acting head coach, as he does whenever Jason Kidd is not available. Some notable stats for Dallas in this game. They shot 17 of 42 from three, which was 40.5%, which is really good. They shot 15 of 17 from the free throw line, 88.2%. Excellent for an NBA team. They had a season-loan bench points at 34 and still outscored Denver's by 10. They also had a season-high points off turnovers with 25, which was plus four from Denver. So why'd they lose? Well, it's probably the rebounding. The Mavs had 34 rebounds and were out-rebounded by 17 including having only 10 offensive rebounds and being out-rebounded 19-10 to 10 on the offensive glass. The Mavs were also outscored in the paint 68-40. to 40. The 68 points in the paint that Denver scored on Dallas was the most that Dallas had allowed all season. And then in the second chance, the Mavs had only 8, while Denver had 20. And on the fast break, Dallas had 9. Well, Denver had 21. So marginally, there just weren't, there just wasn't enough that the Mavs could, could overcome. Or at least there was just too much for them to overcome, I should say. However, in the first quarter, this is where the biggest disparity was. They were outscored 40 to 24, the Mavs were, because the Nuggets shot 6 of 7 from 3, despite the Mavs shooting 4 of 11. 4 of 11 is good, when the other team is not shooting six for seven, but that's what Denver did. Then at the free throw line, the Nuggets also shot six for seven. The Mavs only two for two. Again, two for two is a good percentage, but it doesn't put a dent when Denver has six of seven. And then in the paint, they were outscored 16 to 10 in the first quarter. In the second chance, four to nothing. In the fast break, nine to four. And in points off turnovers, 11 to 7. So every miscellaneous category, they were just outscored. And then they were down by 16 at the end of the first quarter. It was, it was just too much for them to overcome, even with that big run that they started having late in the third going into the fourth quarter. But it's something that the Mavs can look at and improve and say, okay, this is what we can target next time so that it doesn't become, become much of an issue the next time around. And also, it just happened to be a bad matchup for the Mavs big men. 
because when you're guarding Nikola Jokic, for Derek Lively, that means he has to be up at the top of the key, which means he's away from the basket. When you're away from the basket, you can't rebound. When you can't rebound, you can't run the fast break. You can't get second chance opportunities. You can't do the normal things that you expect to do when you're able to out-rebound your opponents. So it was a bit of a mismatch and an adjustment that Derek Lively will have to make. Obviously, he's going to get better, but it's very hard when you when the guy you're guarding is a two-time MVP and the reigning finals MVP. And then there, there were times when the Mavs played a bit more of a smaller lineup, and Grant Williams was the guy guarding Nikola Jokic. There's already too much of a height difference there, and Jokic was able to get his shot up with ease. Now, Grant Williams is able to play very tight defense, but he's just not tall enough to cover Jokic throughout that much of a game. So there will have to be some adjustment for the next time the Mavs play the Nuggets. However, it's on to the next game. So let's talk about the Mavs' home game against the Hornets. What stood out was that from two, not from three, but from two, the Mavs shot 29 for 49, which was 59.2%. On average, they shot close to about 57% last year from two. And so when you start to get above that, if you're not shooting well from three, then you can utilize the two, especially when you're shooting close to 60%, if not more. And that will lead you to keep yourself in the game. In the first half, the Mavs shot only 10 of 21, so not that great from two, with 18 paint points. But in the second half, they turned it around, shooting 19 of 28 with 32 paint points. Now, if you're shooting 18 points in the paint in the first half, you're on pace for only 36. And that's still too low for presence in the paint. But the fact that they kicked it up a notch with 32, imagine if they did that the whole game, the Mavs would have 64. So that adjustment was what was necessary for the Mavs to come back and get this win over Charlotte. And not to mention, Charlotte was also pretty effective in the paint. The Mavs first half paint margin was minus 24 in the first half, but in the second half it was plus two. So that adjustment again was necessary for the Mavs to take out what was their Achilles heel in the first half. On the rebounding side, the Mavs out-rebounded Charlotte by four with 47 rebounds. They had 31 assists plus one, and then they shot 24 of 32 from the free throw line compared to Charlotte's 12 of 21. So they also got to the line more often. That tends to happen when you have Luka Doncic on your team. Uh, But when you can be more effective at the stripe, it's just, it's free points, right? It's called free throws for a reason. The Mavs also had a season high bench points with 50, which was 28 more than Charlotte. And the Mavs had 18 second chance points, four more than Charlotte. 14 points off turnovers, four more than Charlotte. And just for giggles, the Mavs had six blocks, which was also four more than Charlotte. So good on them for having a good all-around presence throughout the game as a whole, but really taking control in the second half. It was the first game this season where the Mavs had seven double-digit scores. And this is something that I tend to track throughout the entirety of a season. Last year, for some reason, having five double-digit scores was not enough for Dallas. But having six, flip the script. So if you can have at least six, especially seven or even eight, 
you tend to be successful in games, and this was no different. Now let's look at some problems for this game. The Mavs had 50 paint points, which for them is good, but they gave up a new season high of 72. It's last year when the Mavs gave up 70 or more, they went 0-3. Somehow they won this game, but this is not really a sustainable thing for the Mavericks. It's best to not let your opponent score 70 or more in the paint. But the Mavs found a way to get the win. It was in the clutch, but they got the win. So last season they were 0-3. This time they're 1-0. Derek Lively set a new career high with 14 rebounds to go along with his 15 points. And of those 14 rebounds, three of them were offensive. This happened to be his second career double-double. So he's, he's doing pretty well for a, for a rookie in his first couple weeks. And then, again, this was the fifth straight clutch win for the Mavs to start the season. I don't, have any, I don't really have any significant note for that because I'm including what happened the next day. So let's go to the next day. The Mavs flew to Orlando, played the Magic, and what stood out, at least to me, was that from two, again, they shot 26 of 42, which was 61.9%. Again, once you're over 60%, if you're shooting below 40% from three, it's optimal to kind of stick to the two. But, I mean, this is just, this is really good, especially against a team that's very tall. The Mavs happened to be out-rebounded, though, 38-31. to 31. In the first half, they were out-rebounded by Orlando, 20-10, to 10, and they ended up being down 13 at the half. But in the second half, they flipped the script. Out-rebounded Orlando, 21-18. Ended up winning by 15. You know, when you say the same things over and over, that's not what makes it true. But the numbers don't lie. So this is true. You rebound, it can lead to winning games. From the free throw line, the Mavs shot 20 of 28 in this game, compared to 14 of 18 for Orlando. So... Another disparity at the free throw line. The Mavs have found ways to get fouls drawn, and Luka tends to be a big portion of that. On the fast break, the Mavs had an advantage, 18-9. to And then Tim Hardaway Jr. had 21 points. It was his third 20-point game this season, and his sixth game in double figures. He scored only nine points November 3rd at Denver, but he also shot a season-low eight field goal attempts. So when Tim Hardaway Jr. is cooking, when he becomes Hemi Hardaway, the Mavs, as long as they have their other scoring options, good to go. They're almost unstoppable. You have Luka, you have Kai, you have Hardaway, you have Grant Williams, you have Jaden Hardy, you have Derek Lively. You have so many options, and I didn't get to all of them. Seth Curry has another guy off the bench. There's so many more offensive weapons that the Mavs can utilize. And they have a bit more of a defensive presence. And so that's what makes this team a bit more exciting than coming into last year. Now, it's not all roses for the Mavs. Let's look at some problems for this game. The Mavs were outscored in the paint. They had, they had scored 38 points, and it was a minus 14 margin. However, on the turnover side, they only had... 15 turnovers, which, which is still more than their average, but Orlando had 21. 
And in the points off turnovers battle, here's where it kind of gets interesting. The Mavs had 21, but so did the Magic. So the Magic were able to score 21 points off of Dallas's 15 turnovers, while the Mavs scored only 21 points off of Orlando's 21 turnovers. I'll get into the math and that in just a second, but I do want to note that the Mavs had nine steals. It's a lot of steals, which was more than Orlando's six. Now let's get back to why that points off turnovers number actually matters. When you force a turnover, the worst or the best case scenario for the team that gave up the turnover is that their opponent didn't score. And the more that that happens, the less that that becomes of a marginal issue. But if the opposing team can take advantage and capitalize on those turnovers, that margin, if they have the lead, widens. And if they're behind, like the Mavs were, then let's say Orlando is in the lead, Orlando's lead gets cut significantly in a short amount of time. So I went to look at what it would take, at least for a team that has the expectations of the playoffs. Since 2018, 2019, which was actually as far back as Sport Radar would let me go because opponent points off turnovers is not, it wasn't a trackable stat before 2018 apparently. But it works out because that was Luka's rookie season. Every NBA playoff team has scored more than one point per opponent turnover. Which means that you need to be able to score more than 21 points off 21 turnovers. Dallas's average this season is 1.04. So it's above one, but it's not that much above one. For the Mavs, they're going to need to this this is a one-off, but they do need to know that this can't continue, that they have to be they have to be more merciless when it comes to taking the ball away and then capitalizing on those turnovers. They can't let, you know, an Orlando turnover end up being a Dallas turnover and then just being more of a stalemate and both teams having one less field goal. For the Mavs to really blow out teams and compete with good ones. They're going to need every point possible. And this is one of them. They have to capitalize on these turnovers. But let's get to the good stuff. The Mavs had three 20-point scores in this game, only the second game this season. I say only as if it as if seven games haven't gone by. Last season, the Mavs were 9-14 and 14 in games where they had three or more 20-point scores, which that had to do more with the second half of the season. They had 20-point scores. They just kept losing games. But overall, under 500. This season, they started off 2-0. and The first game last season was the Phoenix opener. So for the Mavs to already be 2-0, and it's a much better start than they were last season. And in the clutch, it was the Mavs' sixth straight clutch win to start the season. Here's the important note now. It's the Mavs are now the fifth team in NBA history since 96-97, which is as far back as this can go, to start 6-0 in the clutch 
within their first seven games of a season. And I have the report pulled up in one of these tabs. Let's just make sure it didn't go to sleep. But the, based off of what I remember from that report, the most recent team to do it was the New Orleans Hornets from 2010-2011. And then before that, I believe it was 03-04. So now it's starting to load up. I just have to make sure that these settings are correct. So let me make sure that I have this right. First six games through team game number seven. And then sometimes Sport Radar likes to do this where I just have to play with these numbers, even though I had it set up already. And so when I go back by team, and I separate it by team, here we go. The Mavs, this season, New Orleans Hornets from 2010-2011, 03-04, the Indiana Pacers, 2000-2001, Philadelphia 76ers. Yes, Allen Iverson's Philadelphia 76ers, and then 1997-1998, Atlanta Hawks. So these were pretty good teams, to say the least, I mean. To have this kind of a start in the clutch is significant, especially if the Mavs can keep it going. So we'll see how far they go, but it's a great start right now. Now let's talk about Derek Lively and Grant Williams, the center and the power forward that is playing a big factor. Derek Lively is improving the rebounding game, great asset in the pick and roll, a lob threat that can catch anything. So it's great to have him, as I've said over and over, numerous occasions. It's great to have him than to not have him. Grant Williams has been a three-point threat, very strong defender. He's limited in size of power forward considering his height, but he's excellent in most lineups, such as small ball, fast break, transition opportunities. Even in isolation, he's a great wing three-point shooter that can catch and shoot, whenever Luka or Kyrie draws in defenders. And so he'll make you pay from the corner. Really make you pay from any of those zones because he's a great three-point shooter. So it's just great to have those guys. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Luka and Kyrie. So Luka is one triple-double shy of tying Larry Bird for ninth all-time and leads the league in points created at 53.9, which means points scored plus assisted. So not only is he scoring a lot of points, but he's also responsible via assists for a lot of offense. So he leads the league in that category. Kyrie Irving is 13th in NBA, in the NBA, in points created with 39.2. Last season, Luka and Kyrie ended the season as the highest scoring duo in the NBA with 59.4 points per game. And this season, they, um, are, they have the most points created by a duo in the NBA with 93.1. The second most duo with points created is Philadelphia's Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey at 90. So again, 
lot of offense rolling through these two. And now the Mavs are finding other ways to score. As I said, not only in the preview, but even last week, they are continuing to utilize these miscellaneous categories. The second chance, points in the paint, fast break points, and the points off turnovers. So in the second chance, the Mavs now average 15.1 second chance points per game this season, which is 10th in the NBA. The league average is 14, so the Mavs are already doing much better, and the rebounding is showing it. Last season, again, they only had 10.9, which was 29th in the NBA. In the paint, however, the Mavs have fallen back. They are only scoring 41.7 points in the paint compared to their 42.8 points in the paint last season. Both were 30th in the NBA. The league average this season is 50. So the Mavs do have to be better in the paint, especially in those games where they're not going to shoot well from three because they can't just shoot the lights out from three every game, but they can be more consistent in the paint. On the fast break, the Mavs average 13 fast break points per game, which is only 22nd in the NBA. And the league average this season is 14.8. So they haven't really hit that average yet, but they have hit more than they were last season, which is 11. Uh, which was 11, and that was 29th in the NBA last year. And then for the points off turnovers, the Mavs averaged 16.3 points off turnovers per game this season, which is 23rd in the NBA. And last season, they had 16, which tied for 21st in the NBA. The league average this season is 17.8. And so, again, when you force turnovers and when you take care of the ball really, really well, you need to make your opponent pay. And so any opportunity you can get at scoring points off of their turnovers, you got to take it. When we come back, we're going to talk about the New Orleans Pelicans. As I said in the tease last week, I'm working more Pels games recently and upcoming. And so I got some thoughts on them. Just some quick thoughts. But we'll get back in a moment. All right, let's get into the Pels right now. So the Pelicans, I'm going to, at least for their season, I'm going to do a breakdown rather than doing game by game like I do for the Mavs. Let's talk about what the Pelicans are doing well. They opened the season with 21 turnovers at Memphis, which was obviously not great. It was too many. But since then, the Pelicans have averaged 11.8 turnovers per game which is second in the NBA in that span. So they've done a lot better at holding on to the ball. They also opened the season with only seven fast break points at Memphis. But since then, they've averaged 16.8 fast break points per game, which is 10th in the NBA in that span. So, you know, a couple of hiccups in that season opening win, but since then it hasn't been as much of an issue. Let's look at the Pelicans' weaknesses. They opened the season with 25 second chance points at Memphis, which was already so many, right? Their rebounding led to those second chance points opportunities and helped them really take down the Grizzlies in a way that I guess most people weren't expecting, especially especially because with the Pelicans, they were having some health issues, and we'll get into the health of the team at in just a moment. However, in the second chance 
The Pels have only passed 15 points one other time, where they scored 27 at Oklahoma City. And since the season opener, the Pels average only 13.8 second chance points per game, which is right in the middle of the pack. It's about 15th in the NBA. So it could be better, but it's something to take note of. As I do for the Mavs, it's not just because it's the Mavs that these stats show what I'm talking about. This is for every team. But something that we are starting to notice, at least those of us who are broadcasting the Pels, are noticing a quarterly scoring disparity. Why that is, is is somewhat uncertain, but I'm going to try to break down what I'm seeing and potentially diagnose what's causing the problem. So in the first quarter, the Pels are averaging 27 points per game, which is 22nd in the NBA. And for all these quarters, I also have rebounding numbers. They have 12.6 rebounds in the first quarter, which is tied for sixth. In the second quarter, things go through the roof because they score 32.3 points per game, which is first in the NBA. They have the highest scoring offense in the second quarter in the NBA. They only average 12 rebounds in the quarter, which is tied eighth in the NBA. In the third quarter, their points drop to 24.1, which is 29th in the NBA. That is such a dramatic drop from the second to the third quarter, and it's really showing in every single one of these games. They're also only getting 8.6 rebounds per game, which brings them down to 28th in the NBA in the third quarter. And then in the fourth, their point total goes up to 25.9 points per game, which is only 25th in the NBA. And then they only grab 9.9 rebounds per game, at which, which ties them for 21st in the NBA. So not as good in the, first, in the second half as they are in the first half, especially between those second and third quarters. So this may not be the same case every game, but from the games that I have seen and from the stats that I have been able to pull from these games, There are two things, two main things that I'm noticing. In the paint, defensively, in the four Pelicans wins, right now the Pels are four and three within their first seven games. The Pels allow 49.5 paint points per game. In their three losses, they allow 58 paint points per game. Now, as I said when I talked about the Mavs and their paint points, the league average, if I just scroll up real quick is 50. So when you hold your opponent to just around 50 for the Pels, you tend to do a better job and it can lead to more wins. It can result in easier opportunities for you to overtake your opponent. But when you give up 58 per game, That's one of the reasons, not the main reason, but it can be one of the reasons why you end up losing. Now let's go through a breakdown, a quarter by quarter breakdown in all seven of these games. And these are specifically points in the paint that are allowed by quarter. In the first quarter, the Pels allowed 12.6. Second quarter, 13.1. 
third quarter 15.7 and fourth quarter 11.7. So they don't seem as a whole, like, why does this matter? It's really the third quarter numbers where they have such a scoring disparity. They already score the fewest points of any of their quarters in the third, and they give up more paint points in the third than they do in in any other quarter. So you have two different forces that are cutting into whatever lead the Pelicans have. And it's causing this disparity, this imbalance, and these collapses that tend to show themselves from the second to the third quarter. And it's not just the in the paint. It's also outside at the three-point line. The three-point defense for the Pelicans, let's break it down by quarter across all seven games. The Pels' opponent three-point field goal percentage on three-point field goal attempts in the first quarter is 28.8% on 9.4% attempts that's a good percentage defensively you want to hold your opponent to under 30 percent three-point shooting it, it's significant it gets even better in the second quarter it's 20.2 percent 20.2 percent on 12 attempts so not only are the Pels opponents shooting more threes but they're missing so many and that's that is contributing to the margins that the Pelicans are able to have in the second quarter, as well as the big leads that they can end up having. Now, where it starts to dissipate is in the third quarter, where the Pels give up 35% on 8.6 attempts. So any team that gets hot in the third quarter, like the Golden State Warriors, can overtake the Pelicans in the blink of an eye simply because the Pels are giving up more from three in the third quarter. They're they're giving up more in the paint in the third quarter, and they're not scoring enough in the third quarter. All of those factors can lead to such a swing in the game. And in in the span of 12 minutes, suddenly you're like, what happened to the lead? And then in the fourth quarter, Pels opponents shoot 41.3% from three on nine attempts. So it gets even worse from outside. Which means that the Pels really need to clean up their second half defense from outside and their third quarter defense in the paint. Fix those issues. Stay consistent with your second quarter scoring throughout the entirety of the game and you become a different team. At this point in everyone's careers, at least on that roster, they're no longer young, young, young guns, young rookies. I mean, they have Jordan Hawkins now, which has proven to be, he's, he's already had a 30-point game this season, one of six New Orleans players ever with a 30-point game. Or at least New Orleans rookies with a 30-point game, I should say. But most of the players on that team Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram, Jonas Valanciunas. Guys like them, they've been around this league. They've been in this league long enough to know that this is not sustainable and it doesn't meet their expectations. They know where they want to go. They know how they need to get there. It's just a matter of execution. Whether or not they execute is on them. So these are the 
these are the moments where if I pinpoint it, it might be easier to discover and it'd be easier to clean up. It's not like I'm directly telling them this is how you fix it. They have coaches for that. They have a coaching staff for that. But it's something that I'm noticing, something that us and the broadcast are noticing, and it's something that we can talk about. So let's hope that, for, at least for the Pels, that they improve on that front. But health is also playing a big picture here. Recently, CJ McCollum was diagnosed with a right collapsed lung. This is his second collapsed lung. He had a, a more severely collapsed lung while he was with Portland, and so that recovery process was a lot longer. But as Jen Hale reported um, on Pelicans Live in the pregame when it was first when we first talked about it, the the collapse is a lot smaller. I'm not, I'm paraphrasing what she said, but what she did mention is that it's not going to take as long for CJ. It, it'll probably not take CJ as long to come back from this injury as it did for him the last time. However, a collapsed lung is, I don't ever want to go through that. So CJ, I hope you're doing well and I hope you get better soon. There are three other notable players for the Pels who have made an impact on this team in the last couple of years. Jose Alvarado, Grand Theft Alvarado, out with an ankle injury still. Najee Marshall has a bone bruise, contusion in his knee, and Trey Murphy III had a torn meniscus, and so he's coming back from that. So those guys are unavailable right now. So when you add C.J. McCollum to that injury list, the Pelicans they still have superstars on their team. They have a superstar on their team. They have great players on their team. They can still win games. So with everything that's thrown at them, they're like, okay, we know what we have against us. We know what we have for us. It's just about execution. You know what you need to fix. You know how to get better. And then when everyone comes back and everyone's healthy, this team can make a run. I think if this team is healthy, they can be either the first or second spot in the West. However, they just have to execute. They really have to execute. Now, in the short term, quick fixes for the Pelicans, their second half scoring and rebounding. Both will lead to second chance scoring opportunities. It will help them with the uh, it'll help them extend their lead or cut into leads that they that they are trailing. And then obviously, as I said recently, the paint defense and the three-point defense shore up all of that and you'll see much more success than the four and three record will say. So we'll talk about the Pels more often as the season goes along, as I work more Pelicans games, but let's transition to the next thing. When we come back, we'll talk about the in-season tournament and some upcoming topics like James Harden. Why? The Mavs play him on Friday. For the last segment, let's talk about the James Harden trade, the in-season tournament, and some upcoming matchups and the topics that we'll tease for next week. First things first, James Harden found his way out of another team again. Philadelphia let him go and sent him to the Los Angeles Clippers. Now, I have the report from Adrian Wojnarowski, who 
broke the news in the dead of night. The Philadelphia 76ers sent James Harden, P.J. Tucker, and Philip Petrusev to the Clippers for Marcus Morris, Robert Covington, Nick Batum, K.J. Martin, and a load of picks. And this is where it kind of gets interesting. As if the trade itself wasn't already interesting. The Clippers are sending a 2028 unprotected first round pick, two second round picks for 2024 and 2029, a 2029 pick swap, and an additional first round pick from the Oklahoma City Thunder. So how that's all, why the Thunder are a part of this is, I mean, it's part of the package to send that many picks out, but in order to do it, there needed to be a team willing to take on some kind of a swap. So the Clippers are sending a 2027 first round pick swap to Oklahoma City, which then clears the way for Oklahoma City to move a protected 2026 first round pick to the Sixers. So that's kind of how they got that deal to work. And then the Sixers are going to waive Danny Green, unfortunately. Three-time champion, good three-point shooter. Um, But that is to create roster space for the trade. So there's a lot happening there. James Harden has only played in one game as of this recording with the LA Clippers. And the Sixers are looking to move on from yet another big high-profile trade, especially with the emergence of Tyrese Maxey. But what this means for the Mavs is that they now have to play James Harden more than twice. And the first time that they meet him is going to be an in-season tournament game. So let's break this down. The Clippers will visit the Mavs at the American Airlines Center. Both teams are part of Group West Group B. And this game is set to tip Friday, November 10th at 7.30 p.m. Central. Now, let's look at the Mavs' remaining in-season games, in-season tournament games. After that Clippers game, the Mavs have Tuesday, November 14th at New Orleans, the Pelicans, at 7 p.m. Central. And then their final game is two weeks after, Tuesday, November 28th, versus the Houston Rockets. So the Mavs will be at home for that game. And that is at 7.30 p.m. Central. Let's also look at the Pelicans' upcoming in-season tournament since they're in the same group. Their first in-season tournament game will be Friday, November 10th at the Houston Rockets at 7 p.m. Central. Then on Tuesday, same game I had just mentioned, they will host the Mavericks at 7 p.m. Central. And then Friday, November 17th, just three days later, they will host the Denver Nuggets at 7 p.m. Central. And then Friday, November 24th, they will go to Los Angeles and play the Clippers with a 9.30 p.m. Central tip. So all you hardcore fans, be prepared to stay late. Basketball is good late at night. All right. Now that we've gotten through the in-season tournament, next week what we'll go over is a recap of week three, like I did with week two. And we're going to have them, we're going to have more teams that have at that point, participated in the in-season tournament. So we'll kind of see how 
it's all shaking up at that point. It's obviously not going to be a full picture, but with standing starting to be more established, we can take a look at that as well. And before we go, last week, I recorded episode two after game four of the World Series, and the Rangers were only up, the Texas Rangers were only up three to one. Since then, the Rangers clinched their first ever World Series in game five. And I happened to work the Bally Sports post game show for that game. And so I, we were all just ecstatic. We, we had a lot of work to do, making sure that we had a good show. But the excitement of something that's never happened before, something that the, the we as a fan base had tasted and come close to twice before, but never gone over the hump. And now to see this team do it, it, it makes my uh, teenage self very happy considering I was 14 and 15 years old respectively in those first two World Series appearances. So it's just, um, um, the parade looked like it was a lot of fun. I did not go because I had to work the Mavs-Nuggets game, but the, the excitement that the Rangers have brought to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex insane especially considering this team was built to run for the world series title next year so to have this one already under their belt oh boy chris young bruce bochi wonderful job and then uh you know not everyone can win the cowboys unfortunately lost to the philadelphia eagles at lincoln financial field the way it ended it's a bad reminder of how other other important games have ended. But, you know, there are, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. The Cowboys play the New York Giants next at home. So it's another opportunity out of bounce back game. However, I would like to see the Cowboys shore up on the offensive line, give Dak more time, have more of a running presence, because the Dallas Cowboys, if they want to get to a Super Bowl, they can't they can't lose to teams that are over five hundred. Obviously that that's too simplistic of a take of you know, you're playing well against bad teams and playing poorly against good teams. The Cowboys had a good chance at winning this game. And as the season continues, there will be more stats that dictate this is what the Cowboys are doing well. This is what the Cowboys need to fix. But every divisional loss kind of sucks. So let's move on from that, shall we? Let's go over the national NBA tip-off schedule. The San Antonio Spurs will play the New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden on Wednesday, November 8th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 Central on ESPN. Followed by the Golden State Warriors at the reigning champion Denver Nuggets, Wednesday, November 8th, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on ESPN, NBC Sports Bay Area, the Bay Area local affiliate, and Altitude Sports, which is Denver's local affiliate. And then for local NBA tip-off, for those of you in the Dallas markets and the New Orleans markets and so on and so forth, the Raptors will play the Mavs on Wednesday, November 8th at 8.30, 7.30 Central on TSN and Valley Sports Southwest. The Pelicans also visit the Timberwolves 
Wednesday, November 8th at 8, 7 central on Bally Sports New Orleans and Bally Sports North. So if you're in those markets, you got your teams playing at the same time. It's pretty good. Then on Sunday, November 12th, both of these teams go head to head. Mavs play the Pelicans in New Orleans. Sunday, November 12th at 7, 6 central on Bally Sports Southwest and Bally Sports New Orleans. And I get to work Mavs live on that one. So, you know, come through. Watch the show. Have a good time. All right. That's it for me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. I'll see you in the next one. This is Israel Johannes signing off.